I think it's an, a distinction without a difference that's found its way into bureaucracy and now we're kind of stuck with it. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryant, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Well, hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, periodically on the podcast, we revisit this list of terms, these often confused pairings that uh, people, they use one word when they mean another. Uh, I want to continue working down the list of some of these that are from the book, starting with the words meantime and meanwhile. And now this is a pretty subtle one, and they can often be used interchangeably, but there is a time when you don't necessarily want to do that. Is that right? Right. First, let me say that uh, if you folks out there that have the book haven't discovered it yet, there's an excellent list of these commonly confused expressions and words in the back of the book that Tom put together. So uh, it's a neat place to explore this topic. So uh, a lot of authorities consider the two words to be basically interchangeable. But some people think that if you're introducing a sentence with one of them, it should be meanwhile. Meanwhile, the dog buried the baby's pacifier in the garden. Uh, not meantime. Uh, and... The preferred expression for them, for meantime, is in the expression, in the meantime. So, in the meantime, the dog chewed up my last tennis ball. I would say this is one I don't worry about much, mm -hmm. and that um, I don't think it's going to get into trouble with many people, but if you're going to be read by finicky, <laughs> judgmental types, um, maybe in a forum on language or something, uh, it might be worth to consider the distinction some people like to make. Mm-hmm. Uh, how about the words, uh, and these are often used interchangeably, empathy and sympathy. Right. Although sympathy is much more commonly used to mean what you might think of as empathy. Um, and the word empathy is hardly used much at all, really. But there is a difference. Well, there are some contexts. Yeah, sympathy is certainly the more common, and you send uh, a grieving person a, a sympathy card, not an empathy card. Um, empathy is feeling just like somebody else. So if you're feeling empathy, um, that person is feeling sick to their stomach, and so are you. And it's usually used to indicate that the person is being sensitive to the other person. Sympathy is feeling sorry for somebody else. You may not feel the same way they do. Like um, if your friend says, uh, I just lost the burping contest to my sister. You might say, well, I'm sorry. I feel sympathy for you, but really burping? I don't feel <laughs> empathy. Not something I would like to engage in. So, <laughs> Right. Yeah, yeah. I think people will see a movie, for example and follow a character and say, oh, I felt so much sympathy for that character. But that's a line where you could say we really felt empathy because when you're watching a movie, you can get to the point where you feel like you are living as the character. 
Yeah, but there's really a difference. Even in watching a movie, you can feel sympathy for somebody saying, well, I don't really know what that's like, but I'm awfully sorry this character is going through something. Whereas if you feel empathetic, you say, oh, boy, I can feel it. I have had that similar experience. Mm-hmm. you got to be careful when you're expressing sympathy for somebody not to focus too much on empathy because it can shift the focus away from the person who's suffering onto you like uh, somebody who just had uh, an operation on their, their tendonitis and you say oh i know just what you mean i had my god it was so terrible it took me months to recover and let me tell you all the details and so on and you know, that's not what people want to hear. <laughs> they want to hear, oh, you poor thing, how are you feeling? You hope you get better soon. Can I do anything for you? Uh, and of course, the worst kind of thing is a woman saying, well, I'm, I'm pregnant. And uh, the other woman saying, oh, God, I had a horrible time with my pregnancy. Let me tell you about all the things you're going to have to deal with. Uh, that's pretending to be empathetic and actually really being hostile. Oh, yeah, yeah. And empathy comes up also in discussions of psychopaths, uh, people who lack empathy, and also to a lesser degree in autism, um, with people who just can't understand the emotions of somebody else. For instance, being able to detect when somebody's not speaking literally but sarcastically. And, of course, that happens uh, to all of us when we read postings on the web where people mean things sarcastically. And uh, you can often mistake them for being honest expressions of feeling. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you also note in the book that there's an error that people sometimes make using the word emphasize when they mean empathize. Yeah, that's just one of those slips of the tongue. That's just completely the wrong word. Right. You want to say I emphasize with you. Mm-hmm. Obviously, emphasize is a word, but it doesn't mean the same as empathize. Right. So be careful on that one, too. Here's one that we've talked about on the podcast before, but I don't mind talking about it again. It's an interesting topic. What's the difference between a hero and a protagonist? Yeah, we did discuss this before, but it's something that turns up in literature classes all the time and in discussions of movies and other things. Um of course, hero can have lots of meanings in common speech. Just somebody who's brave is a hero. And, uh, of course, is, hero can be a sandwich, too. But uh, in, in the world of literature or narrative film or anything with a story, the leading character is often called a hero. But in more technical use, when teachers of literature and critics and scholars are discussing it, they're more likely to use the more scholarly term protagonist. That's the main person to whom things happen, sometimes through whose eyes you perceive events, who's the central figure, um, because not all protagonists are heroes. We did a whole podcast on the anti-heroes. So you want to avoid that because often the protagonist does not behave in heroic fashion. And sometimes uh, there are students in classes will, will write in an essay that uh, they thought the hero of this novel was disgusting. And, of course, if he's meant to be disgusting, he's probably not meant to be a hero either. Heroes are usually brave and admirable. Um, if you're talking about operas, um, 
often the male lead is the hero, but the counterexample I use is Don Giovanni, who is not a hero. He is the protagonist. Yes, right. Uh, so those are terms that are worth keeping in mind, especially if you are doing any kind of study of literature. Keep it separated, hero and protagonist. What about this word pairing, refrain, restrain? Both perfectly good words, but there's a little difference. Okay, well, the technical uh, distinction is that restrain is a transitive verb and needs an object. You restrain something else, but you can refrain from doing something. There's no, uh, it's an intransitive verb. But most people don't think through those kinds of terms and, and logic uh, grammatically. It's true that refrain was once a synonym for restrain, but now think of some patterns like this. When I pass the donut shop, I have to restrain myself. Mm-hmm. Or when I feel like eating a donut, I refrain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you're restraining yourself because yourself is the object. Uh, but if there is no myself in there, then you just refrain. And you can't refrain yourself. You can't refrain anybody else. Um, however, a song can have a refrain, which is a completely different thing entirely, which is just a verse that gets repeated over and over. Sure. Same as a chorus. Mm-hmm. And to refrain is the same as to use restraint. Mm-hmm. But when you use restraint, now restraint is a noun. Yeah, you can't refrain anybody else. Yeah, exactly. That's a good distinction to keep in mind is that you have to restrain something else right. or you have to restrain something. Uh, okay, here's one that you'll hear in uh, police procedures using the word question versus using the word ask. Yeah, um, I used to run across it in student writing and it would be um, I questioned if they wanted to go to the fair with me. Now, what they really mean that I asked if they wanted to go to the fair with me. The question is to cast doubt about something. You're asking a series of questions, trying to arrive at the truth instead of making a request. So the police question criminals and um, question can also mean to challenge, like uh, the example in the book is his mother questioned Timmy's claim that the cat had eaten all the chocolate chip cookies. So to question is not is like, really. <laughs> She's probably not being overly suspicious in that case. <laughs> she has serious reason to question that. Right, but if you're just asking a question to get a, a bit of information, you're not questioning. You're asking. You're asking questions. Yeah, yeah. You're not questioning. So I asked whether you brought the money to pay for the, your part of the dinner. Right. There is a difference there. You know, we were speaking earlier about uh, verbs into nouns, and ask has gone through an interesting uh, situation now uh, when you're trying to get funds from a donor or a potential donor for your political campaign. uh, The process you go through is called the ask. Yes, you're right. Yeah, and that has really entered common parlance to the point where uh, that spills out beyond, you know, fundraising activities and so on. Uh, if you need a favor, you'll say, this is a big ask. Yeah, while we're at it, let's talk about calling for the question. Um, a lot of people are in meetings which are supposedly using Robert's Rules of Order. Usually nobody there really knows 
Robert Schools of Order and they just wing it on what they've known. Somebody seeking to cut a discussion. Sure, we'll often say, I'd like to call the question. Wait, Robert's Rules of Order, let's go over that briefly. Okay, it's a set of rules about how to conduct a meeting and determining how to conduct votes and what takes precedence and how discussion should be done. Okay. And um, so the call for the question means um, I would like us to stop this pointless discussion we're having on this too long discussion and go directly to deciding it. Let's have a vote. Mm -hmm. But some people are under the impression. Well, first of all, it's not call the question. It's called for the question. Um, But some people are under the impression once you utter those magic words, the debate has to stop. But in the formal rules, all that is, is, okay, well, pause for a moment and ask everybody, do you want to go to a vote now or do you want to talk more? If the majority of people say, ah, yes, we're so tired of hearing you two bicker, the rest of us would really like to vote on this. Then you can proceed to that vote, but you can call uh, for the question. And if the majority of people want to keep on talking, that's perfectly fine. That's normal, legitimate. It's not a magic phrase that just cuts off debate. Yeah. Uh, let's continue on uh, switching gears to a goal versus an objective. Yeah. And this can also be meeting speak, yeah. business speak. We have goals and we have objectives. What's the difference? Right. A lot of times for your annual review, you're supposed to write about your goals and objectives as if there were some great distinction between them. (laughs) And most of the time in normal usage, the two mean the same thing. So there are some of us, me included, that thinks goals and objectives is just nonsense. Just redundancy. It's a redundancy. But but the thing is that almost everybody who asks you for goals and objectives has some authority over you. (laughs) So you have to figure out what they mean by that. And so the usual argument is that goals are general. Uh, We want to make more money next year with at this firm objectives are more specific we want to increase sales of our widgets by 25 percent the example in the book is if your goal is to create a safer work environment your objective might be to remove the potted poison ivy plant from your desk Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so the objectives are supposed to be more narrow now apart from that phrase goals and objectives i don't think anybody uses objectives in that narrow sense what's your objective in all this to get married, mm-hmm. <laughs> to win the pennant, <laughs> yes, you know, to be happy. Yeah, <laughs> um, I think it's an, a distinction without a difference that's found its way into bureaucracy, and now we're kind of stuck with it. Mm-hmm. Well, as a textbook editor, I come across it most commonly um, in typical chapter organization. You begin with the list of objectives at the start of the chapter. So at the end of this chapter, you will be able to blank. And there's a list of certain things that you are intended to learn in this chapter. And those are the objectives. Now, the overall goal is to uh, learn how to program in Java. But to that end, we're going to learn about these aspects of it. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think most people would fall into that naturally. The problem comes when you're challenged to write some goals and objectives and you're trying to figure out what the heck does this person consider to be a goal and what they consider to be an objective. (laughs) And you do want to throw them all into the same pool. 
you know, who knows? There's a whole bunch of stuff we want to do, and and uh, here's here's the list. Yeah, my goal and objective is not to have to fill out these friggin' annual evaluation forms. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. My goal is to get to the end of this tedious task. Um, well, here's one. Uh, loaf and loathe. Uh, these are commonly used interchangeably, but there is a difference. Neither one is really a common, common word, but loathe is more common than loaf. Mm-hmm. Uh, loathe has a sort of an antique air to it, I think. Uh, if you're loath to do something, that means you're reluctant mm-hmm. to do it. Uh, and it's pronounced to rhyme with both, loath and both. Loathe, which rhymes with clothe, is a common verb, meaning dislike intensely. He he loathes anchovies mm-hmm. on his pizza. To be loath to do something, uh, you will hear that mispronounced. If people yeah. do use it, they will say, right. I am loath to do that. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, and there's the famous line in Planet of the Apes where the ape pronounces, I loathe bananas. I'll never forget <laughs> that one. <laughs> uh, this next one is uh, just a great one. Oh, there are many layers to this. So let's discuss credible versus credulous. Right. Well, to begin with, credible originally meant believable or trustworthy. So um, the uh, statement he made to the police was credible. They believed it. But it's also used in a more abstract sense, meaning something like worthy. She was a credible lyric soprano. You know, she she sounded like, you know, a real professional. Um, That's pretty common. So you don't want to confuse this with credulous. Credulous is gullible. So somebody believe something is fooled into it that means they're credulous it was easy to cheat the guy because he was so credulous and incredulous means that he doesn't believe it so he said uh you're really telling me this is a rolex watch and it only costs 25 dollars <laughs> <laughs> i'm incredulous about that yes yeah right i don't believe it um incredible means unbelievable but it also can mean wonderful i think it comes through sort of a sinuous path here uh, it means um it's associated with the common expression unbelievable uh, when somebody does something just amazing and wonderful you can say oh, it was uh, incredible it was really good and it means i could hardly believe myself i know it was real but it's hard to believe because it was so amazing astounding so it really means it strains credibility but uh, you've overcome that strain and uh, you're expressing your amazement so that's incredible yeah and it's funny to hear for example meryl streep is an incredible actor (laughs) because Yes, and especially when it applies to actors, that's what really annoys me, (laughs) because the whole point of an actor is to be believable. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And somebody makes an incredible portrait of somebody else uh, is very self-contradictory. Right. Yeah. But if you put it in those terms, that's where the leap is. An unbelievable performance, meaning unbelievably good. Yeah. 
can hardly believe how good it was. Yeah, and if you make that bridge that way, then all of this use of incredible to mean something that couldn't possibly be literally be unbelievable <laughs> or incredible, um, but that usage of it really makes uh, it makes more sense, much more sense. Yeah, there's so many other uh, words you can use to describe something that's wonderful that uh, I just assume people did away with the incredible. It's very tired and worn out. Nobody pays any attention to what it means anymore. They don't think at all about the fact that it has to do with doubt in any way. And there's a whole section in your book on intensifiers. Right. And incredible would be one of those that has really, it's been overused to the point of having not much meaning in itself. Just as a way of intensifying what you want to say. Neato. Neato. <laughs> it's an old one yeah. for you. Yeah. If you do happen to use incredible, he was incredible, or that was an incredible speech, or that was an incredible event. Uh, if you do use it that way, I think it's important to use it in casual speech or uh, circumstances where people are not going to be judging you much on your, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Lack of vocabulary. <laughs> about ability to be articulate it's just a cliche yes. you know I, I wouldn't say it's wrong that certainly the word has come to have that meaning but it's just so tired and empty an expression it's not vivid if you're really impressed by something you ought to choose more vivid words mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so there's another expression related to this uh it strains credulity or it strains credibility and there's a subtle distinction here. They overlap. But if something strains credulity, it means that even a person who is normally credulous, that is very gullible, uh, would be have a hard time believing it. And that doesn't make sense because if a person is credulous, that's something that comes without thinking about it. If you're a person who finds it easy to believe things, the whole point is you're never straining to figure out whether something is right or you're wrong. You just accept whatever you're told. So there's no strain involved. You just fall into credulousness. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to say it strains credulity. It makes more sense if something's too weird or wild to be credible. You say it strains credibility. Yeah. And that is the traditional expression. Well, this has been an unbelievably interesting conversation. <laughs> and I want to pick it up again in the future. We'll do some more of these. I find these kinds of errors pretty interesting and keeping these little distinctions in mind. You subsume them, you know them, uh, they'll help you. So thanks again, Paul. Okay. That was fun. Yeah. We'll talk again next time. So long. That'll do it for the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. Send your comments, questions, and feedback to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.